The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here, and I have the special privilege to interview uh, author Jeremy Johnston. So welcome to the podcast, brother. Great to be here. And uh, Jeremy, you are a first-time interviewee to our show. We're really thankful for you taking the time. Uh, both of us have uh, been able to accommodate this time on <laughs> early Monday morning as we're recording. But uh, we want to talk about your book, All Things New. But before we do, can you briefly tell our audience about yourself? Sure. So I am a Canadian. So I'm up here in, in the Great White North. Um, I was raised in a Baptist church. And I came to Christ uh, when I was a teen um, through solid biblical preaching, um, as well as a youth ministry that encouraged personal devotions. So they encouraged us to, you know, read our Bible regularly, pray. Um, and so I, you know, the the truths of the gospel that I heard and saw growing up in the church uh, became real to me uh, as I encountered the Lord through the book of Isaiah, actually, um, through those daily devotions. So it, it was incredible. Um, and of course, the, the preacher at the time was preaching the doctrines of grace. So I, I didn't have to wrestle with with you know, becoming, going from an Armenian to a Calvinist, I was immediately converted into, into good, solid biblical preaching. So, um, and then since then, uh, I've been involved in various lay ministry uh, in the church, various churches, preaching and teaching and, and uh, writing for about 30 years now. Um, but my day job, what I do for a living is I'm an educator. So I've been teaching now for 20 years. Um, and I actually, I currently teach in three institutions. I'm an adjunct professor at Heritage College and Seminary uh, in Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, Ontario, uh, not not, uh, not Cambridge, UK. That'd be amazing. But uh, um, so that's where I am. Uh, I teach rhetoric and literature there. Uh, I'm also an adjunct professor at uh, um what we call a vocational college, Mohawk College here in, in Hamilton, Ontario. And then I teach English and classical studies at a private school. <laughs> so I'm doing a lot of teaching uh, in different institutions and in different contexts. Um, I studied Bible and theology uh, at Peace River Bible Institute in Alberta, Canada, uh, as well as I did my education and literature degrees at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, Canada. Um, you notice that a lot of these Canadian cities borrow from uh, from uh, European and British city names. So, um, and then I've written two books so far. Um, the first one that we're going to be talking about today is All Things New, Essays on Christianity, Culture, and the Arts. Uh, and I've also written a collection of poetry called Undiminished Returns, Poems of a Christian Life. Um, 
And this collection of poems explores the life of a person, uh, a male or female, from pre-conversion through to awakening in Christ and then finally aging and dying in Christ. So it's kind of a, a collection of poems that you have to read uh, chronologically as a narrative as you walk through what it was it like before conversion, what was it like when Christ broke into your life, and then dying in, in Christ. Um, on a personal level, um, I've been married for 25 years. My wife and I just celebrated our 25th uh, a few months ago. Uh, my wife's name is Lori. Uh, she's my beloved, and my helpmate, um, my co-laborer, my supporter. Um, and I, we have four children, um, three of whom are adults now. So three adult kids and one still at home. Um, and we were homeschooling parents. I suspect that some of your listeners are homeschooling parents. That was us uh, for a couple decades. Uh, we're still homeschooling our youngest daughter uh, into high school right now. Um, and we followed the classical um, Christian model. Uh, that, that was our approach, if, if uh, some of you are familiar with that uh, as well. Um, and I should add one more thing. I suppose... Um, um, just about me and my interest in the arts. Um, I, I do want to say again, I'm a Baptist, so <laughs> it, it is sort of a rare thing that uh, um, that Baptists talk a lot about the arts. Um, I, I don't know if I'm the only one, but uh, I have a dear friend of mine, my, my publisher, often says, I think you're the only Baptist who, who writes and talks about the arts. I, I'm sure that's not true, but um, I did find growing up that... Um, not a lot of Baptist writers do reflect on the arts. Um, and most of my early understanding of faith and the arts, of Christianity and the arts, which is what my book is, is all about, um, came from our Presbyterian brothers. So people like R.C. Sproul, Francis Schaeffer, Philip Riken, um, and his father, Leland Riken. These are all Presbyterian guys. Um, and then another guy, Gene Edward Veith, who I think he's Lutheran. Um, I thought, where's the Baptists who are talking about about the arts? And I had, growing up, I had a very aesthetic awareness. Um, aesthetics is, of course, the, the appreciation for beauty. Um, I enjoyed art. I enjoyed music. I enjoyed literature. I enjoyed architecture. Um, the church I grew up in uh, was... Uh, aesthetically ugly. It's very ugly, ugly Baptist church. Um, and I remember even as a kid, even before I was converted, you know, uh, the, my first memories of this ugly green carpet and this very uh, counterintuitive design uh, of a building, um, you know, it just struck me that, you know, this ugliness around me, this doesn't, it doesn't jive with the God of the Bible, who's a God of great beauty. So, um, Eventually, over the years, I, I felt that the Baptist tradition had largely um, overlooked or even ignored this aspect of the, the human experience. Um, and I feel that whether you are intentional or unintentional with aesthetics, you are always communicating something to people around you. Um, you, you know, so, you know, in, in terms of architecture, for example, um, an ornate or decorated space or a spartan or sparse or utilitarian space says something different about uh, what you value and about what you believe about 
God. Um, and you know, when you look to the scriptures, you, you know, God reveals himself first as an artist. Um, you know, before God speaks uh, to, to us through his word, um, we see creation around us declares God's greatness. The heavens declare, um, Psalm 19 says, um, and, and he's the great creator. He's the great author. And that's the God that we encounter. Um, so, so what what do we do about art? What do we do about creativity? Does God care about the arts? Does he care about? So, so all this being said, um, uh, my pastor in, invited me to, uh, to begin sort of teaching and preaching to our church on these topics. Um, and eventually uh, I took on the role of um, the arts columnist for our national magazines called Barnabas. It's put out by Sovereign Grace Fellowship Canada. Um, and so I write, I've been writing for them um, last 15 or 16 years, writing an arts column. Um, and then eventually some of those articles became part of my book. Um, and, uh, and then here we are. So um, talking about the arts. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a subject that's near and dear to me. It's a subject that we do need to pay attention to. Um, and uh, let me just give, not that I want to do a huge, you know, preempt too many of the questions that uh, we have today, but um, just two examples, just so, so, so your listeners are hooked here. If they're wondering, you know, what are, what's the role of arts um, and really are arts all that important? Um, the first example that comes to mind is, is uh, within the church uh, is hymnody, our hymns. Um, we sing hymns in worship of God. And of course, a hymn is is both poetry and music. These are art forms, two very prominent art forms. Um, and as as rich and rewarding as it would be to, um, you know, to sing the sixteen eighty nine, uh, you know, Baptist Confession, or or to sing Calvin's Institutes, we, we don't actually do that. Um, we we sing poetry instead. Um, and uh, and even most Baptist churches don't sing exclusively psalms. I know there's a big movement in some some of the Reformed churches to just sing the Psalter, but um, but we typically most churches will sing new poems, new hymns, whether it be you know Isaac Watts or, or Fanny Crosby or even the more contemporary uh, hymn writers like the Gettys, for example. So somehow in worship. Um, art matters. Um, and of course, it's not just the poetry, uh, it, it's the singing, it's the melody, uh, it's the instruments, it's the harmony. Um, you know, we, we don't have, uh, uh, what do they call these, reading in unison. We, we don't read in unison, it is well with my soul, um, that great hymn, we actually sing it. Um, and I think anyone who's had a chance to sing that hymn, and I hope that many of your listeners in your churches, you still sing that great hymn. Um, it is so powerful and moving. Um, and it's powerful and moving first and foremost because the theology is powerful. Um, but it's not just the good theology of what they're saying in that hymn about the sovereignty, the soul satisfying sovereignty of, of God and the providence of God um, that, you know, we find rest and peace in him, even in the trials and, and storms of life. Um, but it's the fact that the, the music matches the message so well. Um, and, uh, and so, so there it is, right? There, there's the role of art that somehow art speaks to um, our, our bodies and our hearts. Um, 
you know, the theology, the doctrine often speaks to our heads. It can speak to our hearts as well and our bodies, right? Our theology does uh, define what we do with our bodies. Theology does define what we do with our hearts and what we think about. Um, but sometimes in churches, we we have a habit of of only speaking to the head as though our congregation is full of brains sitting in a pew. Um, but they have eyes, they have ears, they have tongues, they have they have hearts that beat, they have bodies. And art art speaks to that aspect of the human experience, that visceral, emotional aspect, which God designed when he designed human beings. We have hearts, we have bodies, um, that the, the heart and the body are good, um, as well as the mind. Um, and so art speak to that side of, of, um, of the human experience. So, um, yeah, so, so that's sort of a, a chief example, um, of how we use and how we see and how it's easy for us to understand, oh, I guess that is art. And I guess we are using art in worship. A couple more examples just to sort of bring, bring the, 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 the point home. I should say uh, as well that, you know, art isn't exclusively just for church use. Um, we can talk about that a little bit later, but I'm just thinking of how we use art in the church. And um, the other example is the drama of baptism, the drama of baptism and the drama of, of the Lord's table, communion. Um, you know, as Baptists, we, we have good biblical um, and theological reasons for participating in these sacraments. Um, but as as a Baptist, sometimes we rarely reflect on why. Why does God call us to the theatrics of baptism? Why does God call us to to this display, this physical display of of communion? Um, we know there's biblical mandate for it. There, there's good reason for how we do it, and so on. Um, but baptism, for example, it, it's a it's a visual parable of the gospel. It's the gospel summarized. It's the gospel on display. Um, you know, you see the person coming down, um, in, and you see they're they're you know, going beneath the surface. This death, and then this resurrection, this rebirth, uh, this cleansing. Um, it's just such a beautiful and powerful point. Coupled with, uh, often baptisms are coupled with uh, a testimony, which is very rich. But there's something heart heart moving something stirring about seeing the drama seeing the actual display of this act um, which is a kind of art right it's a it's a visual parable similarly communion the bread and the wine um you know when i've seen pastors or elders you know hold up the bread and they break it and one body broken for you this is my body there's something very 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 real about this that um you know, Christ actually came to earth. The incarnation is a real tangible thing. Christ actually had a body. He lived and died and um, and rose up again. Um, and then we feed on Christ. Christ nourishes us. And, and the one blood, the, the blood that is so precious that we drink together. Um, and so we take in, we ingest it. it. It enters our body. We become part of, of that. And so, um, you know, there's a few examples then where... Um, you know, where art um, it can be seen as a powerful uh, part of the of the Christian experience. So, um, so yeah, so, so that's me. That that's kind of why I got 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 interested in this sort of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's me. 
Very good. You've begun to whet our listeners' appetite towards art and to introduce your book, which you've said was the first book you wrote, All Things New, Essays on Christianity, Culture, and the Arts. And uh, in this book, you start the first chapter by referring to Bezalel and Aholiab. Um, why are they significant in reference to art? And in addition to this question, uh, I want to ask you, maybe as a part B, what is art and how can we use art uh, to glorify God and how do we use art to avoid idolatry? So I know that that's actually three questions, but you can take my triad of three questions <laughs> and answer right. it however you please. Very sneaky. Just sneak in three big questions there. Um, well, I'll try to be as concise as possible here. Um, Bezalel and Oholiab, um, these are artists, you know, as, as part of the Exodus, when the people of Israel are being taken out of slavery, taken out of Egypt, um, and they're heading towards the promised land. Um, Moses, God commissions through Moses, um, Bezalel uh, as sort of the chief artist, but also Oholiab, as well as other artists, um, to, to build the, the tabernacle and the furnishings for the tabernacle, which are all works of art, right? It's a kind of architecture. There was, uh, there was uh, special designs. There was linen. There was, uh, you, you know, you see all these different elements. There's goldsmithing. Uh, there's the building of the ark itself, um, as well as the other furnishings for worship. But what's very interesting about these, these two artists is that it's the first time in recorded scripture that we hear about someone inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is a key idea, right? The first time that someone's filled with the Holy Spirit um, are, in fact, artists who are, uh, who are given clear instructions by God. You know, the dimensions uh, of the ark, for example, are clearly articulated, what size it should be um, and what furnishings should be made uh, for worship of God. Um, but we also see that God actually opened the door for them to... Uh, to design or devise, uh, it says, this is Exodus 31, 4, to devise artistic designs. Um, so, so God says, okay, here I want to make the, the ark, but I also want you to, to embellish it, make it how you want it to be. We don't know exactly what the Ark of the Covenant looked like because Bezalel and Oholiab and other artists worked on it and created something. They actually put their own creative spin to some degree on the appearance of it or the aesthetics of it. Um, so to me, there's sort of this, um, prototype of artists. Now, now again, um, Bezalel and, and Oholiab have a very specific role to play in the, in the sort of biblical narrative. Um, they were building the tabernacle, um, and not every artist, uh, is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? So it's not, it's not that, you know, to be an artist, you have to be, there has to be some kind of divine intervention going on, but it does call to mind, the way God also wrote the scriptures um, or had the scriptures written down. Uh, there's this co-labor, you know, that, you know, there's over 30 odd authors that contributed to the scriptures. Um, and many of the authors have unique styles and they have unique, unique ways of writing. Um, and, and even the fact of, um, you know, the various um, genres or forms of writing that we see in the scriptures. Um, uh, I've got here some stats. 43% um, of the Bible is narrative. Narrative is, is storytelling. 33% uh, of the Bible is poetry. 
So poetry is another form of art. Um, and 24% uh, of the Bible is what we would call discourse. So that's your sermonic um, or sort of lecture or, or legal, legal language. Um, but the fact that the bulk, so almost, uh, what is that, 70% uh, of the Bible is really an artistic form of writing. Um, and, you know, again, you think of uh, David, for example, who is a psalmist, who's writing his style, his artistic, you know, his use of metaphor, use of similes, um, shows that somehow God does work through artists and he wants to work through artists um, god didn't organize the bible and give it to us um, as wayne grudem's systematic theology um, you know if, you know or whoever right um, or the 1689 um, you know th there is um there is somehow in god's design understanding how he designed humans that he presents his truth in these artistic forms and, and even in creating the tabernacle um, you know, these tools were meant to point the people of God to who he is and what he represents. Um, there is this kind of idea that visually, uh, although, you know, not everyone could see all the elements of the of the tabernacle because it was covered and and the, you know, the Ark of the, the Ark of the Covenant was 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 deep inside the, the Holy of Holies and was covered when it was carried and all this sort of thing. Um, but it was there that th there is a role that God that God calls artists to in terms of um, creating art. And in my book, when I talk about these two guys, um, I sort of extrapolate some general principles um, that artists can take away from these Holy Spirit inspired artists. Um, you know, one of the things that it talks about in Exodus is that they, they were able men. Um, so it reminds artists that they need to be proficient, that that excellence matters, right? It's not just whatever you do, just just slop it together and that's good enough for God. Um, you, you know, God is interested in excellent work. So if you're a musician, if you're playing piano or the organ for your church or um, if you have other instruments, um, you ought to be a competent and skilled uh, musician, um, you, you know, and uh, there's also the delightful aspects, Um you know, Bezalel and Aholiab incorporated elements in their creation that often had almost no meaning. Um, and this came up in, so in Solomon's temple as well. Um, you know, there's these blue pomegranates. Well, well, we're not really sure why they were blue pomegranates, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's just an ornate feature. It's something that, that emphasizes that beauty matters. Um, and of course, what I was saying earlier in terms of art and the church or art and worship, um, art speaks to our hearts. Um, it speaks to our bodies. Um, and I think that's why, um, that's why God does it. So, um, the, the, again, it just shows that it's an aspect of the human experience that we tend to overlook. And you hear the word of God puts Bezalel and Aholiab, uh, front and center as key biblical characters ones that most people won't even know if you ask your average kid you know name some you know your top 20 bible characters people like you know uh david and daniel and and uh, maybe some of the prophets um and of course the apostles but we won't often think of guys like bezalel and aholiab um because they're artists and we typically ignore that aspect um you know to our detriment because I think artists within the church can offer a great deal, um, which I, I guess, let me just get to part, just to 
to get to part part uh, B or or subsection two or <laughs> of that question um, is what is art? And I guess I should define that. Um, and uh, it's a hard it's a hard word to define, uh, especially in the 21st century. And certainly even the 20th century became hard to define because um, you know most people when they go to an art gallery like a modern art gallery and you walk in there and you know you walk into an empty room um and uh you know there's a there's a piece of you know broken broken glass in the middle of the floor and somebody says this is art you know it's a 3.5 million dollar installation um or <laughs> you know um here in canada there was this huge huge debate about this giant um gigantic painting that really was just a red stripe um and it cost taxpayers millions of dollars to purchase this this uh this piece of art so i i think it's not just christians uh or baptists who are skeptical about art um you know your average citizen uh you know if you go to your local coffee shop and you say you know does art matter um a lot of those folks will say absolutely not um it's just a bunch of silliness um that goes on and so i think we have to disentangle ourselves as christians we have to disentangle ourselves from where art has gone uh in the 20th century and the 21st century um and i think christians have a role and one of the key reasons why i wrote this book is to encourage christians and encourage the church um to become uh, not only art appreciators, but art redeemers to, to sort of redeem the ruin, redeem the wreck uh, that uh, the world has made of art. So, um, so back to you know defining what art is. It does involve human creativity. So, so it does. So it's it's skill, it's imagination, um, and that skill and, and imagination, that human creativity, is expressed in in tangible and concrete ways. And to me, this is a key point: is that it has to be, uh, excuse me, it has to be tangible, has to be concrete. So, music that you can actually hear, words that you can actually read sculptures that you can and paintings and performances that you can actually see and touch um, and even culinary masterpieces that you can taste um, now again you know um, if, if if some of your listeners you know have a degree in fine arts they, they might question me on this definition um, because at this point um, in fact just uh, I think it was last year an artist sold a, a sculpture that was invisible <laughs> so I don't know. He got paid fourteen thousand um, dollars. I think it was some, some ludicrous amount of money for an invisible sculpture. Um, and uh, but I would say that's not art. Um, that's that's just games. Um, that's the um, I don't know if you're familiar with that old uh, uh, fairy tale or, or story, the the Emperor's New Clothes, where where these these tailors are paid an inordinate amount of money um, and they make this beautiful robe for the king but of course it's invisible it's not actually anything um and then they pretend to put this robe on the king and uh and then so he marches he parades down the street you know completely naked but thinking that he's wearing this very beautiful robe and um and he's told by the artist that well only the most astute only the most wise person can see the beauty of this robe and of course he didn't want to admit that he couldn't see anything so he pretended that he was among the wise and so there he is marching down the street completely naked and 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 all the citizens were also 
pretending they could see this beautiful robe until um, a little kid just says, "Hey, he's not wearing he's not wearing any clothes," and uh, and then the whole sham, the whole um, facade collapsed. Um, and I think that's the problem: is that with much of contemporary art. Um, there's this sort of aloofness. There's this sort of highbrow um, view of art that, you know, you know, you walk in, you see a bunch of paint splattered on a canvas, and you know, everyone's standing around, you know, staring deeply and 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 sort of and sort of you know stroking their chins and saying, mm, yes, I see. Um, and of course, there's nothing to see. It's just paint on a splattered on a uh, on a canvas. Um, or there's nothing to see at all. It's literally an invisible sculpture. I think that's madness. I think that's just part of part of our current culture that has gone completely off the rails um, in terms of not only the arts, but you know, in terms of gender and sex, and um, you know, what's 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 a man? What's a woman? What's what's uh, what is marriage? Uh, I mean, all the things that have gone wonky and crazy in our culture. Art has also gone. In fact, art was probably the first to go. Um, which is why I should say this, that um, one of the reasons why Christians need to pay attention to art, because it's often um, the foreshadow of what's to come. So the madness that you would see in an art gallery are now, now we see in our classrooms. Um, and now we see in our, in our hospitals. Now we see uh, from our politicians' mouths, or we're hearing from our politicians' mouths. So um, art can often be a... Um, I'm going to use the word. I'm if you, you can't see me here, if you're listening to this podcast, but I'm air quotes here. You know, it's art can be prophetic in, in sort of not in a real sense, not in a God prophetic sense, but it can be a, a, a canary in the mind. There's another way to say it: a canary in the mind. Mind, um, sort of where is our culture going? And if you look at art, um, it will show you. And that 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 idea, by the way, of looking at art to see where our culture is going, is something that Francis Schaeffer was um, was was very big on, uh, and helped me understand that. Um, I should plug his book. Um, if you're if you're if your listeners are familiar with Francis Schaeffer, he's a he's a phenomenal guy. Um, you know, not perfect, but but whoever is, um, but his book, uh, and I'll hold it up for those who are, who are watching this. It's Art in the Bible um, is a great primer um, on Francis Schaeffer's view. It's really just two big essays um, dealing with art in the Bible and dealing with art and culture. But his other books, um, if you read other Schaeffer books, you'll see he talks a great deal about um, about how art can give a real sense, give you the pulse of the time and place that you're living in. Um, so that's kind of my definition of, of art. Um, and, and when I talk about the arts, um, I should say too that let me add one more, two more, two more qualifiers there. Um, that uh, I, I do feel that art needs to be appreciated um, for their beauty and emotional power. So there has to be, um, you know, there has to be something that that impresses us. That 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 doesn't mean that all art needs to be beautiful. Um, I think art can reflect ugly things um, as well uh, in a beautiful way. Um, so, for example, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Um, and there's a lot of ugly things that happen in that story, you know, a lot of evil, evil deeds and ugly orcs. But it's still a beautiful work of art because of how well it portrays even evil. So um, and it has a powerful emotional uh, impact on readers. So so when I talk about the arts, by the way, uh, I, I include 
visual arts. And oftentimes when you hear the word art, people think only of paintings um, or sculptures. Um, but when I'm talking about the arts, I'm really talking about visual arts. I'm talking about poetry and, and novels um, and uh, theater, drama, cinema, uh, music. So, so sort of the, the, the whole gamut of human creativity expressed in a, in a range of genres and forms um, is what I mean by art. Um, the third part of your, your, uh, is this our first question here? I don't know. The no, third this, part. this is, yeah, this is the first part of our, uh, second question, which is the okay. third part of our, our triad. So sorry right, to, right. to, uh, frame the questions this way, but it was just to remind our listeners, uh, how can we use art then to glorify God and avoid idolatry? Ah, uh, yeah, right on. So how can I, how can we use uh, to, 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 uh, to glorify God and avoid idolatry. Well, I think, um, again, thinking again through a Christian lens, um, and I know I'm talking to, in, into sort of a, a number of different groups um, within Christianity. Um, you know, you have your non-artists who, uh, who are sort of partaking or participating in art. Then you have your actual artists who are creating art. Um, and so I do want to encourage um you know, creators of art, but also art appreciators to use their gifts um, or use art as a gift from God um, to, to glorify him. But obviously idolatry is a key piece, particularly visual art. Um, we know this from, from history, biblical narrative history, um, how, how idols, actual works of art, that, that's what an idol is. It's a sculpture that um, that someone says this is your god can become an idol and we see this even in the history of the church um you know icons become worships like in the greek orthodox for example tradition where uh actual paintings or images have spiritual significance literally as as the icon um or within uh, roman catholicism although they don't um generally theologically they don't look at art or sculptures or paintings or stained glass windows as though it is spiritual. They use art, excuse me, Roman Catholics use art to convey or communicate truth. Many, um, many average Catholics, sort of your day-to-day -day Catholics or your, um, you know, Easter Christmas Catholics will tend to use art, um, almost in, in, in an idolatrous way. So they have their crucifix or they have their little saint glued to the dashboard, um, that sort of thing. So um, it is a danger. And I think um, in the Reformation, um, there was iconoclasm where stained glass windows were smashed and sculptures were destroyed and um, you, you know works of art you know, were demolished, robes were burned, the, those sorts of things. Um, and uh, so it is a serious thing. Um, but even within the Reformation, um, just to continue that, that strand of thinking, um, Martin Luther, um, the great reformer, was actually quite sensitive to art. And um, while he was hiding out, as you know, his, his life was threatened there for, for a time. And he actually left hiding um, when he heard that in Wittenberg, uh, they were demolishing the church. Um, and he came back and he, he spoke against iconoclasm. He spoke against, uh, you know, that extremism where he was seeing Protestant reformers kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that's what I'm always urging for is sort of a moderate approach. Um, 
we see in scripture that God does use forms of art. And I mentioned earlier in our little chat here and in my introduction to who I was and why I was interested in the arts um, that we still use art in our churches, uh, primarily through hymnody, um, but even our actual buildings, the architecture of our buildings convey something about God. And, um, you know, and, and you're not being any more biblical by being utilitarian, for example. So you've seen these churches that are, um, that look like community centers, right? These new buildings. Um, and people think that they're being really biblical by not having any kind of art at all, but they're, they're just swapping out the aesthetics of beauty for the worldview of pragmatism, which is a, another kind of worldview, which isn't necessarily biblical. Um, so I, I don't think we should throw out the arts entirely. I think we should figure out how can we glorify God without it becoming idolatry, which is the question you're asking. <laughs> you're asking me to answer. So, so let me just say this, the old, um, you know, the medieval church talked about truth, beauty, and goodness. Um, these three ideas. And I think, um, I think the church does a great job. Um, you know, particularly Baptist churches, um, reformed churches do a great job with truth, uh, doctrinal truth and I th biblical truth. And I think, uh, uh, you know, Christians do a great job with goodness. I think we try to, to show what a trans gospel transformed life really looks like, um, day to day. Right. So we're not stealing. We're not lying. Um, I mean, we're, we're, we're sinners. We're still sinners, but we're we're trying to to do the good works that God's called us to do by the spirit and keeping in step with his his Holy Spirit, keeping in step with his word uh, and so on. But where we've dropped the ball, I think, is beauty. Right. Is uh, we forget about beauty. Um and, and all three of these, truth, beauty, and goodness are important. Um, they need to be there. Uh, they need to be done well uh, and they need to be edifying. And, um, you know, uh, it's been said before that um, truth unadorned is often truth ignored. And I think there's a way to to uh, to present truth in a way that's attractive. I mean, that's one of the jobs of a preacher. I just preached a sermon uh, on Sunday and um, I was in the book of Nahum. I don't know if you guys are familiar with 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 Nahum, but it's a pretty doom and gloom book. Lots of judgment. Um on the city of Nineveh, and it's pretty, it's pretty graphic in its description. Uh, but part of my job was to take this book. I was preaching on the whole book in, in one single sermon, and um, to try to to present it clearly, but also uh, engagingly or artfully, right? So we incorporate um, illustrations, and um, you know, I try to use alliteration from time to time, and some preachers do, right? When they do their their three points, and it's, it's the alliteration. Um, and th there's ways that's using art to try to engage and communicate effectively to your audience. So, um, and, and when we do that, when we reflect the beauty of God, um, whether it's our art or whether it's our artful way of communicating, we are glorifying God. God is the beautiful one. Um, God is interested in beautiful things. Um, Francis Schaeffer once said, uh, come with me to look at the Alps um, and tell me that God is not interested in beauty. Um, he is. Um, you know, there is no reason why God made the Alps so beautiful, the mountain ranges or a forest. Um, 
you know, so beautiful. The sun, it's a, here in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, it's a beautiful day. The sun is shining. I was out on the deck with my wife having coffee this morning and, and doing my devotions. And, you know, you hear, you hear the birds chirping and uh, the squirrels running around and the wind gently blowing, blowing in the uh, leaves of the tree overhead. We've got an American beech tree, big giant American beech tree. And it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's delightful. The fresh smells coming from the garden, the fragrances um, of the flowers. Our God is interested in beauty. And we need to be clear that we present that aspect of God. Um, a little while ago, um, I preached um, a series. It was sort of a series of talks at, at Heritage, the, the college and seminary where, where I'm a professor, um, um, on Psalm, Psalm 19. I'm just going to read a couple of those verses just to get this into our mind of, of creation as God's work of art. It says, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. So the heavens declare, so the stars, the sky um, declare. So they say something about God and they, they say something about the glory of God. It says the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Verse two, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. So the, so the, the trees, the, the sky, the, the stars, they don't actually say anything. It says, nor are there words uh, whose voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And so we get this great idea that, that creation um, says something about God. It's a form of art. Um, it's, it's a form of communicating to us uh, it's showing us God's creativity. And so um, when we as Christians ignore creativity, when we ignore beauty um, and we just just the facts, ma'am, I don't know if you there's this old TV show called Dragnet. Um, one of the one of the officers would say just the facts, you know, none of the embellishments. And I think we've. I don't know if it's because we're still influenced by the Enlightenment or if it's, you know, rationalism or, um, you know, empiricism, whatever, whatever's defining our culture. We, we, we've sort of squeezed out beauty um, from our, from our list of options to communicate the gospel to the world. And we focus only on the cerebral. Now I should say here that um, let me qualify here. Um, obviously, the word preached is is the is the fundamental way they need to hear the word preached in order to grasp the gospel. But there's an adornment that comes with with the the beauty and the art that we use to to, to show um, the beauty of God. So we tell the beauty of God with our words by sharing the gospel, but we show the beauty of God with our lives, obviously, but also with the way we use art, right? It's powerful. When when newcomers come in, when unbelievers come into a church and they're caught up in the hymns, right? Again, I'll use it as well with my soul. Uh, hopefully your listeners are familiar with that hymn enough to know. Uh, and you hear and you see the way people sing this song. You're like, what is this God? Um, no, it's not just emotionalism, but there's something behind uh, this song. There's something behind this song that that urges us to uh, to find out more and to listen more intently. Um, so, um, John Piper, um, who I who I greatly admire and have have grown a great deal from, um, 
he says, in light of this, in light of this idea of, of bringing forth the beauty of God, he urges artists and poets and musicians and all Christians to labor to say an old truth in awakening ways. Um, God is worthy. He says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song or, or picture or poem or figure of speech. And, and what Piper's getting at here is, um, you, you know, God has called Christians um, to minister to this time and this place, um, which means we need to engage the culture that we're in, engage the people. And sometimes we need to take old truths um, and present them in new ways. Uh, we're not changing the truth. Um, we're just presenting it in, in, a, in a fresh way, in a way that awakens um, you know, the hearer, the listener uh, to the great truths of God. Um, which means that Christian artists, for example, um, you know, they, they don't need to just simply paint or draw or, or sing about crosses or empty tombs or shepherds and sheep. Um, because again, creation isn't explicit. Um, you know, the heavens declare, we see the skies proclaim that although it doesn't use words, it says something to us. It says something to us by speaking to our hearts and to our bodies. Um, but it says a great deal about who our God actually is. Um, and so, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, how we use art within the church and how much we use, um, again, I, I, I never want to come on and say, or, or in none of my articles uh, or my book, do I come out and say, this is what you should do with art. Um, because art I think is, is fairly nuanced and some people are, um, they can be distracted by art. Right. Um, if you've ever been into a Catholic cathedral, for example, uh, the amount of art that they pack in there, it's it's overwhelming. It's just it's actually distracting. You can't help but but be, be you see all this statuary, see all this. Um, and if it's if it's, a, if it's a beautiful old Catholic cathedral, um, you know, the artwork is incredible um, and it's hard not to be distracted by these things. And so you have to be careful about how you use art specifically in a church experience or a worship service. Um, I think we're comfortable with music because it's in the background. I think we're comfortable with the hymns. Um, but I would challenge, I would challenge your listeners to with hymnody to make sure that you are incorporating good, solid hymns uh, that are currently being written. And um, the reason why I say this is because, again, there's ways in which you want to present, even to your, your older saints who've been around for a long time, to present those old truths in awakening ways. Um, there's a, uh, a hymn that we started singing recently, um, and the, the, the line goes, um, our, our sins, they are many. Um, but his mercy is more. And just this, just sort of this, this uh, turn of phrase um, really struck me in a different way. I just reminded of how great our sins are, but then how much greater are, um, there is the mercy of God upon us. Um, you know, that, that God, that God does not give us what we deserve um, through his mercy. Um, and of course, through his grace, he gives us what we don't deserve, <laughs> which is fellowship with him in the kingdom of God. So um, th so we need to have fresh, fresh hymns, I think, uh, that still have the solid truths. Um, and one of our worship leaders at our church, sometimes before we sing like an old, a great old hymn, like an Isaac Watts hymn, for example, um, he would often pause and say, OK, um, 
you know, do you know what this word means? Or, um, you know, just to clarify for the congregation, because there's some words in there that uh, they're archaic. We, we don't know what they mean anymore. Um, yet we sing these hymns and we forget what they what they mean. So um, there is a contemporizing of the language, contemporizing of the poetry for clarity, but also to, to awaken us to these old truths. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are, are lawful, but not all things build up. And I think that's a, that's a good verse to sort of dictate how we use art in worship, you know, specifically, or in our homes, or in our workplaces, or in our neighborhoods. Um, you know, how is it helpful? I can do, the Lord hasn't, hasn't, denied me i can't use these things but is this helpful for the congregation is this helpful for people or not um and then you know a few verses down paul says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all for the glory of god and, and i feel like um you know those two ideas need to be kept in place is that you know is it helpful for people is it is it building them up is it pointing them to the lord or is it a distraction if it's a distraction we need to tone that down or get rid of it um if it's helpful then let's do it um all for the glory of god which just full circle brings us back to bezalel and aholiab um in exodus we actually see um i can't remember if i if i wrote in this book or if it's if a talk i've done but it's a tale of two artists um bezalel and aholiab sort of one group of artists and aaron is the other artist um and of course bezalel is is making the tabernacle making the art for worship of god and then aaron is an artist um who, who makes this golden calf which is a sculpture which is an idol um one bezalel's work points us to god who he is his character um his truth and uh, it's not the God. So the, the Ark of the Covenant isn't God, but it points us to God, who he is, his character, you, you know, what he values, what he does for us. Um, and then, of course, Aaron's golden calf was, this is your God. <laughs> so, so that's your, your idol, right? Your, your, how is art being used? It's not that art is wrong. It's how are you using the art? Is it building up or is it distracting? Does it point to God or does it point to yourself, your own desires, your own um, distractions? Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And it had a lot of uh, helpful qualifications about how we can use art to glorify God and how we can avoid idolatry and good examples with Bezalel and Holiab. So thank you for that. And uh, we want to encourage our listeners to check out the first part of the book, which discusses some of these things. But in the second section of your book, uh, which is titled On the Artist's Call, mm. you make the case that we are created to be creative. And you've already implied to many ways that we can um, display uh, creativity, but can you further elaborate on um, the case that you make that we are created to be creative? Yeah. Um, again, we, we are, you know, in Genesis, we see God as creator. That's how he breaks into, into the world. That's how the book begins. He creates the heavens and the earth. And then um, we're told that he creates humanity um, in his image. And what's interesting is that um, one of the defining features about humanity is that we are creative. Um, G.K. Chesterton, um, the great thinker from the 20th century, um, made this point um, he says, I think it's in his book, Everlasting Man, uh, which is an excellent, excellent book. Um, 
Chesterton points out that he says art is the signature of man. Um, what, he, what he means by that is um, no other creature on the planet creates art. Um, it is the one thing that differentiates human beings from all other biological forms on the planet. Um, and so he kind of makes the case, you know, that, you know, as, as human beings are so different from all other, all other creatures on the planet, um, this is because we're made in the, in the image of God, that his, that God's creativity is actually the defining, uh, one of the, the, the sort of chief defining elements of our, of our humanity. Um, so, you know, um, up here in Canada, we got a lot of beavers. Um, and, uh, uh, when I'm out canoeing, canoeing up uh, up north and i come across a beaver beaver dam um it kind of looks like a mess looks like it's not really finished and i think oh this is, maybe the beaver's still working on this and i pull my canoe over and and we go on to the next lake and we come to another beaver dam and it looks exactly the same uh and then i've been to other other you know wilderness canoeing areas and i see beavers dams and they're they're all the same um and i'm reminded of the fact that Okay, if you've seen one beaver's dam, you've seen them all. Um, but if you come into my house and you look around my house or my neighbor's house, even if it's the same, and in fact, my neighbor has the same design of their house, um, our houses are totally different um, because we're humans. We create our space. Uh, we're unique. If you go into an apartment building where every apartment layout is essentially the same, yet every human being creates a different space. Um, that's profoundly human. And that's, that's art. That's human art on display. Um, and so we have this idea that somehow God has called us um, to be artistic, to express this side of his character through our lives, um, through our creativity. Um, and some of us are particularly gifted in the arts. Um, you know, thankfully not everyone is an artist. Um, we've got other people who are gifted with engineering, you know, building good bridges and, you know, good theologians. And there's all sorts of areas where, you know, God gifts human beings differently. Uh, but I think that everyone has an, an artistic element, right? Uh, they have an, a, some kind of aesthetic awareness. Um, some have more of an aesthetic awareness, some have less. Um, but I feel that the artist in particular um, has a case or certainly certainly should use that gift that God has given them to be creative um, and not just simply to write hymns or songs or make make paintings of crosses, for example, for the church. I think when an artist goes out and does their job well, wherever it is, they're glorifying God because they're showing how their skills are, are being used. They're bringing beauty into the world. They're serving the world by, by adding, by making things um, and reflecting that creative aspect. Um, and, and again, back to the church context, I think sometimes um, um, Christians can fall into the trap of, of considering their, their fellowship or their congregation or their church building, for example, the place where they meet, um, it's a, as though it's a museum, right? A place to preserve historic art, you know, or to preserve the hymns from 200 years ago. And we need to preserve, there is a preservation aspect because, you know, the church has inherited things uh, from the past. So we're thankful for the writers and the thinkers of the past. Um, 
you know, I'm thankful for church historians like Dr. Michael Haken, who who's a, who's a dear friend of mine. I know he's been on this podcast before. Um, who 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 reminds us of the past? That reminds us of that inheritance, um, and how we can take that from the past and apply it to today, but also pass it on to future generations. I think the same is true with art. That you know we need to appreciate the old hymnody. I don't want to lose some of these great old hymns, but we also need to be writing new hymns and creating new works. Um, so there's a there's a presentness to to being being creative. Um, and, and I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast about, um, you know, contemporary art has gone off the rails a little bit. And um, I think there's a role for Christian artists to redeem the arts, to bring back things like beauty, truth and goodness to their creative process. Again, it doesn't have to be explicitly um a biblical message it doesn't have to be explicitly, you know, Bible verse, you know, sewn into a, a quilt or something. Um, but if you make a beautiful quilt or you make a beautiful apple pie or you make something that's that's phenomenal, you're you're reclaiming back God's plan for the world and God's plan for the world. We, we see this back in in Adam and Eve, the the call to have dominion over the earth. There's a there's a there's a there's a creative call there that Adam and Eve are called to to make things, um, to create things out of the things that God has made. So, you know, he's given you trees, uh, make wooden furniture. He's given you stone, you know, make sculptures. He's given you. And, and so there's this there's this idea that God's given us a bunch of raw materials and then he encourages us um, as co-laborers to create. If I can circle back to. um uh, communion, for example, uh, uh, one of the things that strikes me about communion, and this, um, what who brought this to my attention was a he's actually an American Japanese uh, artist, uh, Makoto Fujimura, um, who wrote in his his book called Art and Faith. Um, he points out about communion. He says, "What's interesting is that, you know, as we celebrate the Lord's table, we're not just eating grapes and grain, um, but we're actually we're actually participating of wine, uh, which is an art form, right? The, the human beings have taken uh, grapes, we've pressed it, we've, we've, um, you know, we've added uh, sugars and and so on. There's the whole, um, the word escapes me. It's not, it's not distilling, but, um, or is it? I can't remember what the process of making wine, um, you know, or grape juice or whatever you, you celebrate at your church. Um, you know, th there's a creative aspect that God gives us the grapes, but then we make juice out of it. We make the wine out of it. And same with the grain. You, you know, it's not the grain that we're taking. It's the it's the, the grain that's been ground up into flour and then baked into a loaf. Um, and so you see this kind of that God is calling us this idea of um, and I'm keeping using the words co-laborers. This is something that the Apostle Paul, the phrase that Apostle Paul uses um in terms of the gospel, but I think it extends to Adam and Eve and extends to all of us. So as we create, um, you know, we're actually adding to the world that God has created. Um, and that should be a no brainer. We, 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 we look around and we see human beings have created some many, many beautiful things. We've also destroyed things, right? Open pit mines and, you know, ugly malls with, with uh, you know, forests have been chopped down and they put a, a parking lot there. Um, but, y y you know, there is this idea that um, 
that somehow there's some beauty that we've done and artists have had a key role at, at uh, making new things and adding to the beauty uh, of creation. Um, and, and I mentioned earlier as well, just as another point about, you know, again, God's calling us to engage the time and place that God has placed your local church, um, which is going to involve um, more creative efforts and, and a freshness. Um, so, I mean, there's more I could talk about in terms of the, the, the artist call. Um, but um, to me, this is a powerful point because we can be appreciators of art. Uh, as Christians, um, but we also need to make space for our Christian artists who, who often don't have a place within the church. Um, you know, artists are already, many artists tend to be fringe people. Um, uh, it's just, <laughs> that was kind of a general statement. I'm sorry if there are some artists listening to this podcast and, and hear me calling you a fringe person. Um, but I think you might, you might know what I'm talking about here. They, they tend to see things differently. They're, they're just, they're, because of their imagination, they tend to see things with fresh ways, fresh eyes. And that's what makes their art so compelling is the freshness that they bring. The um, I'm going to use, again, this is air quotes here for those listening. Uh, it's sort of an unorthodox view of the world. And I, and I say that air quotes, I'm not saying that they're they're seeing new truths or they're inventing new truths, but they're seeing those great truths in a, from a different perspective. Um, and that's why they're so valuable to the church and so valuable to the world um, and why art is so important anyways. Um, it just, it again, awakens um, you to from out of your stupor, it, it, you know, what we get used to, what we get comfortable with and then bang, uh, a song or a work of art or a story um, or, a, you know, something else. It just awakens us to something fresh, reminds us of something beautiful um, about about our God. So so it is an important role to play that artists have, I think. Um, and I, and I want to make sure that as Christians that we we help and support um, by, by giving them space, but also giving them financial support, uh, you know, as possible to be creators. Hmm. Well, before we begin to wrap up our conversation and talk about final encouragements related to this subject, I do want to get some examples of art. You've given many al already, but you give specific <laughs> examples uh, in your book related to literature and music and cinema. So I'm going to uh, lump some of these together. Can you uh, tell our audience what you think are some good examples of literature specific or of art through literature, music and cinema and why you think they're good examples? Yeah. Um, these are massive, massive topics. And, and I should say that my book is really designed to be a primer. Um, and, and, you know, those of you who, who get a hold of the book and take a look at this, um, you know, look at my footnotes and look at my, my recommended list of other, excuse me, other resources, because, there are other thinkers who, who've gone much farther than, than me because this book is meant to be sort of a gateway into this world. Um, and so when it comes to, to things like literature, um, man, it, this is a huge, this is a huge area. And so I'll try to keep it as, as, as brief as possible. Um, but, but I, I find tremendous value in, in looking at um, the classics, for example, even the pagan classics, like, like uh, Homer's the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, all the way up to to novels um, and poetry by by non-Christians. Um, this sort of thing is that is that great art isn't 
only under the purview of Christians. You can actually appreciate great art from unbelievers. Um, you have to always have your your theological lens on. You always have to have your biblical lens on uh, when you look at these things. But there are great truths. Augustine said something to the effect of truth is God's truth wherever it is found. Um, and through some of these great works of literature, um, uh, you know, the books are one of those things because I think what makes a great writer a great writer is that they are a great observer of the human experience. Then they can convey that human experience accurately, beautifully, and well to an audience. Um, and so if if you have an artist who is genuinely and honestly looking at the human experience and then conveying that to us, um, then uh, you will find biblical truths there. You will find God's truth in those texts. Um, you'll have to filter it out. I mean, obviously things like, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, this is ancient Greek epic poetry, for example, from you know, 2,600 years ago, um, written about the same time, actually, as the book of Isaiah. So if you want to want a, like a historical timeline of when Homer was writing. Um, and if you read Isaiah alongside the Iliad, as beautiful as the Iliad is, it reads like it's a made up story, <laughs> right? Then you read Isaiah and you're blown away by the weight of God and some of the, the, um, the doctrinal truths that are presented there. Um, so it's kind of neat to see what an authentic account of the story is and so on. But as you become a better reader of poetry, a better reader of literature, you become a better reader of the scriptures as well. I mentioned earlier in our in our discussion about um, how much of the Bible, 40, 40 odd percent is, is narrative form. It comes in story form. And so the more stories you read, the more you're able to understand how to read a story, the more you're able to read um, the scriptures. Um, but it, it, I should say this as well. What what makes stories so effective is that they tend to show more than tell. Um, and I think um, you know when when you're when, when when somebody's trying to explain to you you know how to fix the plumbing in your house. I, I'm kind of a I'm a terrible plumber. I, I'm not very gifted in that area at all. Um, and, you know, you talk to some of these guys at church, you know, these gifted guys, and, oh, just do this and, and tweak this and turn that. And, and I just want, just show me how to do it. You know, and of course now with YouTube, you can actually watch uh, a plumber, you know, fix these things. And, and there's something powerful about being shown how to do something than being told. So I should have mentioned this earlier. That's where art works. It works in the show realm um, more than the tell. I think we need the tell still. The tell is crucial for us, obviously as Christians, as Protestants, as Baptists, you know, the preaching of the word is paramount, um, but also showing us um, is also very, very important. Um, G.K. Chesterton writes, again, to, to cite Chesterton again uh, in his book, Orthodoxy, he says, the first use of good literature is that it prevents a man from being merely modern. To be merely modern is to condemn oneself to ultimate narrowness. So I, I think part of a problem of our age right now is that you know, a lot of kids in school are reading books that were written 10 years ago or five years ago, and they're becoming increasingly myopic, increasingly narrow-minded. And um, so we need to, as Christians, we need to read old books um, as well as new books. New books for us as Christians, we need to get a sense of where is our culture currently thinking and where is it going? But old books to give us some perspective. Um, and I think Christians need that because many Christians are are being affected by our culture without realizing it. 
right? It comes through social media. It comes through advertisements. It comes through the movies that we watch, the, the so on. And um, we almost feel like that is reality. And by reading old books, it reminds us, no, no, that isn't reality. That is just the zeitgeist or the, the spirit of this particular age. And we need to step back and say, what actually is biblical Christianity? Um, so, so to me, literature is, is absolutely crucial. Um, what do I recommend? Um, well, you know, many of your listeners probably studied Shakespeare in high school, um, but keep taking in Shakespeare, Jane Austen, Dostoevsky. Um, if you're looking for Christian authors, C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, it's a children's book, but it's worth rereading. Uh, Screwtape Letters is another sort of fictional epistolary novel. Um, I'm a big fan of the epic poem Beowulf. Uh, it's the first English work. Uh, it's, it's written originally in Anglo-Saxon, but it's, uh, you can find translations. I also recommend some of the dystopian novels that have come up, um, like Brave New World by Huxley or 1984. These are these are not Christian authors, and yet they provide incredible insight uh, and almost prophetic, again, air quote, prophetic uh, perspectives on where the world is going um, and very helpful. Um, even... Um, uh, the Handmaid's Tale by Atwood. It's very controversial. There's some graphic elements to these these books, so I do warn warn your readers if they're sensitive to these things. Um, but you know what Atwood does? She's a Canadian author. Um, she writes with incredible beauty, um, but incredible insight uh, into where human beings can go. And I don't think she fully understood the truth that she was expressing, but she did a great job at capturing accurately some of the challenges and conflicts of, of, of life on earth and, and some of these pursuits of idealism. So, you know, there's a, there's a wide range of books that you can read. Um, and again, by reading these books, it will only sharpen and enhance uh, your ability to read the scriptures, um, as well as to read the world around you, to read the worldviews, to read the the um, you know the messages being conveyed, and what's influencing and shaping the the culture that God has called you specifically to minister to in through your local church. Um, you know, in terms of music, <laughs> man. Um, you know, music is a great subject. Um, you know, the problem is, is that we're used to listening to music. Uh, sorry, we're, we're used to hearing music, but not necessarily listening to it. I don't know if you know the difference, but, you know, when you're in the grocery store, you hear music all the time, but you're not really listening to it. Um, and so uh, we think we're, we're more experienced with music than we actually are. Um, and I often compare this to children. Um, so I said, I've got four kids. They're all grown up now or almost grown up. Um, but when they were little, um, not that I did this, so let me just qualify. I didn't do this, but you can imagine a little kid would prefer a glass of sugary Kool-Aid over a glass of fine wine. Not, not that I gave my kids wine, but, but you get the idea, right? Um, that, that a child who has a limited um, palate, a limited taste will prefer sugary Kool-Aid over something that requires a refined and trained taste. Um, and I think that's a key thing with art as well, is that some of art, you do need to train yourself to fully understand and appreciate what the artist is doing. And again, I want to put an asterisk there and qualify that. I'm not saying this is the emperor's new clothes, right? That That's the extreme. But bring it back and say, you know, do you understand what a jazz musician is trying to do uh, by using dissonance, for example? Um, 
or by by allowing um, you know improv. You know what is going on with a jazz a jazz piece, um, all the way to J.S. Bach. You know with a fugue. Uh, you know with the, with the complexity, the the counterpoints, all the things that are going on in a in a Bach composition. Um, so so I, I would challenge, uh, you know, I could give a list of things, you know, with Bach, for example, the Passion of St. Matthew, Mass in, in B minor, um, Handel's Messiah, for example. Um, but it's it's sort of a, I'm sort of an odd duck when it comes to music because I my tastes are quite eclectic. I mean, I enjoy Keith Green. I don't know if some of your listeners remember Keith Green from the 70s and 80s, you know, Christian musician. But I also enjoy Pink Floyd and CCR and U2 and Simon and Garfunkel and, and Harry Connick Jr. So it's, it's kind of a mishmash. Uh, but my main go-to is Bach. He's my number one guy. Um where I go to as well. So I love, I love Baroque and I love Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, so yeah, there's, there's again, a lot more we could talk about. Um, but, uh, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, this has been a very uh, helpful conversation for our listeners to consider art. Uh, we do want to begin to wrap up this conversation. So uh, I guess by way of, Conclusion and summarization, do you have any final encouragements for our audience, either pertaining to your book or the subjects in your book or the conversation that we've been having or art generally? Uh, I'm sure that we could probably have a podcast <laughs> specifically on music, specifically on literature, specifically on cinema. But uh, for uh, the purpose of conclusion and summary, what final encouragements do you have? Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's... Um... What can I say to, to sort of uh, generally encourage? Um, I would say again to the listeners, and I've been saying this all along, is, um, you know, develop that, that or what I said in the last few moments about developing a taste. Um, be, you know, begin to train yourself, read the materials. Obviously, you know, I, I would like to plug my book, but um, I'm also a big fan of, as I mentioned, Francis Schaeffer, um, that book by Makoto Fujimura uh, called Art and Faith is very helpful. Leland Riken, uh, his book is called The Liberated Imagination, but anything by Leland Riken. Um, he's an English professor from Wheaton. Uh, he's actually... Uh, Professor Emeritus now, he's retired. Um, and his son, Philip Graham Riken, as who's the president of, of Wheaton College right now, um, you know, these are these are great, great and helpful resources. Um, there are some great talks out there about the arts, but but teaching yourself to become an appreciator of the arts. Um, those of you who are gifted with the arts, uh, whether it's in a practical way, in a large way, you know, use your skill as an artist. Um, remember that as an artist. If you, if you are a Christian and an artist, you actually have access to parts of society that, that, that the church generally doesn't. Um, that's something to keep in mind as well that, um, you know, as I mentioned, artists do tend to be on the fringe because it's not just the church kind of pushing the arts away. Our culture has relegated arts to the fringe. Um, and so churches aren't reaching these people as much as you as a Christian artist could. So even that can become a vehicle that becoming good at your craft, um, whether you're a you know, wood carver, whether you're, you know, a chef, whether you're, uh, you know, um, some kind of musician, you can bring the gospel through those things. Um, so, so you as Christian, as Christian artists, be makers, uh, not just of Christian art, but of great and beautiful art. Those are two 
key ideas. We need to appreciate art. We need to make um, art. Um, I also want to say that there is an element where, um, you know, be open to art moving your heart and mind um, and your bodies. Um, remember that we're not just brains in a pew. Uh, we tend to default to the cerebral. Um, but um, I think it was Tim Keller said something to the effect of uh, art can be a, um, a backdoor to the, to the truth. So, so it's still, it's not, it's not a new truth, but it's another way of, of getting us to sort of become more alert or more sensitive to the truths of God that we're hearing um, by the truths of God that we're seeing or experiencing through, through art, whether it's in the church or outside. Um, and again, you know, there's a testimony. I mean, even, you know, my, my wife is the gardener at our house and, and um, she does a great job at making our front gardens beautiful. That's art. Um, she's, she's managing our garden and she's communicating to the neighborhood and that's a ministry. Um, you know, they know we're Christians. They see us go to church. They, they, they see our family. They see the things that we do. We, we get to know many of our neighbors in our, in our near near vicinity, so that so they know who we are, they know who we believe in, um, and we're showing to the world. Um, so even having a nice garden, right, um, and uh, even hospitality uh, is key. So making a nice roast for for guests or having your house, you know, I'm not saying get carried away with decorations, but it can communicate something to God. So you don't have to be a Michelangelo, you, you know, artist. Uh, you can be a small scale artist uh, by being by creating beautiful things to the glory of God um, in your homes and houses and your workplaces. Amen. Well, that seems like a good place to let off this conversation. Uh, we do want to thank you, brother, for uh, coming on the Covenant Podcast to take your time to discuss this topic, uh, specifically in relation to the book that you have authored. We want to encourage our listeners to purchase it and read it. But thank you, Jeremy, for coming on today. Oh, well, thanks for, for having me. I, uh, I hope it was helpful and informative, and, uh, and hopefully we can chat again about more of these things. Yes. Uh, I, if anybody was encouraged, I was, and thankful to hear about this conversation of art. Uh, we, we pray that it brings glory to God as we consider these things, and we hope to our listeners, grace and peace to you. Amen. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to The Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.